previously on Two Star Two Trek. Greetings, friends, and fellow Lower Deckers! Yeah. We're here! It's an emergency episode! It is an emergency episode. Red we, alert! Yes, very much <laughs> a red alert episode, because um, the way this happened, we released our final episode, our Literally Picard two-parter episode, on Thursday before we had a chance to watch Lower Decks. And we record this a couple weeks in advance, just to like stay ahead of the curve. And now we we are at the edge of the map. We have caught up to the present, guys. It's wild. The pandemic lasted way too long. <laughs> Shit. And dude. now there's new media, but it's still going on. Yes. So we're still here. <laughs> so the general idea is from this point forward, we are going to be covering two parters as they happen. Throughout all of Star Trek. So, Prodigy, Strange New Worlds, Discovery, Picard, Lower Decks. Well, and, and we're going to Russian nesting doll it just like we did with our, our Disco series because this week's episode of Lower Decks First First Contact, the end of season two, it's the season finale. So, we've got to wait, what, maybe an entire year? Oh, at least. Potentially? Um, until we have the second half of this. So, like, very likely, I knock on wood, potentially we could have other two parters come to fruition during that time in between, but we didn't want to leave you guys hanging for a year. That sounded stupid, and we love Lower Decks, and we've been talking about doing this for a long time. <laughs> so we're very excited. We've got two fantastic guests joining both Caitlin and myself tonight. We have Stacy and Forrest ready to talk some cartoons. So, Stacy, how are you doing tonight, man? I'm so hyped. I can't wait. This has been something I have been beating the drum for for ages, but we haven't been able to. So when I first watched this episode, and I was like, wait a minute, we're running out of time and the things that are happening are happening. Wait a minute. Don't, I, I didn't allow myself. Don't give me hope. Don't, don't. And when I, when the car dropped, I was like, we're back, baby. <laughs> and to the credit of everybody who contributes on this podcast, basically the entire Discord channel of our peers had seen this before Ryan and I were able to like catch it later that evening. And everyone kept the secret from me and Ryan that it was a two-parter. And whooping and hollering. It and was, fist pumping. And it was such, I've, I've, it, it was like a pure joyful moment, the likes of which I felt very seldom since probably January 2020. Yeah. Like, Forrest, how are you doing this evening? Are you, are you ready to talk about our favorite Lower Deckers? I'm so pumped to have this crazy crew of bunk bed hallway sleepers <laughs> in my life again and on the life of our wonderful little podcast here so much that i'm uh choking up a little but that's just because i've been spending too much time in cetacean ops <laughs> and i really need to uh i really need to dry out after that experience yeah that i think was the biggest shock of the episode so let's let's just Dive right in. It's been two seasons of Lower Decks. We've gotten to know Rutherford, Tendi, Mariner, Boimler, and then, of course, all of the, the bridge crew. My personal favorite character is probably Shax. Oh, Caitlin, Shax who's your favorite character? I adore Shax. <laughs> <laughs> he speaks to me on just such a visceral level. 
I think I retweeted something earlier that was the scene where he was making pottery and he was like channeling all of his vengeful energy into the pottery. And I'm like, I get you. (laughs) I get you, man. And even just, you know, the bridge crew being cagey about how they come back from, you know, what was almost certain doom where they had big tearful ceremonies for each other. And then they just never have to talk about it again. I just, I love that. God, I love him so much. Perfect. Stacey, who is your favorite character? Out of everybody. It's tough to pick because I I vacillate between like, well, Tendi is a cinnamon bun. And if anything happens to Tendi, we ride. Mm-hmm. So right. that's, that's off the table. She, she's, she's amazing. Agree. But if I had to pick, uh, it's Dr. Tana. Yeah. She's, oh, yeah. she's, she's at once the Star Trek ideal of this highly capable, highly competent officer, a medical specialist like you read about. But she's so right. done. She's so done. Done with everything. Like, just the level of her her sass and just the dry wit. She's breathtaking. Even in this episode, she gets Definitely. some great bits where she's like, eh, I'm okay with this. <laughs> she's, nice. like, she's gruff, but she cares a lot about you. That's what I like. Forrest, what about you? Who Who's your favorite character out of everybody? I mean, I think it has to be Tendi. She's just the most bubbly, positive, but also like deeply invested. And especially when getting getting eaten by mysterious space slugs, just like so emotionally like ready to express whatever complicated thing she needs to in the moment. I've loved the Orion adjacent episodes and the mysteries of her, I don't know, ruling some small sector of Orion space, it seems. Tendi's just my favorite. Uh, I'm a huge Mariner fan too, obviously. I just love every interaction of her versus authority. And to this day, Katie and I, will still sassily say live long and prosper at each other uh, in honor of what that was like episode one or episode two. And it's, it's still good to this day. Well, right. what's, what's wonderful about, you know, Mariner and Boimler, in my opinion, at least is that they represent kind of the two sides of the same coin of the millennial experience where you've got, you know, the anxious guy who's been trying his whole life to make something work and it's only kind of working. And then you've got the part of yourself with imposter syndrome to the point where you kind of at times actively sabotage yourself (laughs) and yet still like manage to do cool things once in a while. And watching them play off of each other, you know, it just it makes it such a complete whole. It's, you know, why the first couple episodes of the season where they're separated feel, you know, so disjointed. And that's the point is that you need to have both sides of that experience. And I just, I love them so much. I think they are also conduits for like the idea that everybody can be a Star Trek fan Mm -hmm. because like Boimler is, is a Star Trek fan who lives in universe, but Mm -hmm. like is not, a Star Trek fan, but, like, we all know that guy. Like, we all know that guy that's like, oh, man, Riker did this, and, you know, oh, I love Kirk, and is that the Guardian? And, like, you he know... He has encyclopedic knowledge. Yeah. And he's just, like, very hyper-aware of it and really, really excited about it. And then Mariner, on the other hand, is like, yeah, Star Trek's cool. I dig it. I would love to, like, punch a Klingon. I want to <laughs> get drunk with Klingons. I want, you know, like, let's fight some Romulan. Like, it just... it. I think the two of them together just work so well and gel so well together. And it's just a testament to how well the writing on this show is. So let's jump into the episode itself. Boimler is super excited. 
Because it's Captain Freeman Day. <laughs> yeah, and the, the other characters keep reminding him that it's it's a holiday for small children. Uh, and he just doesn't care. And again, that enthusiasm is so pure. Like, he genuinely is that excited. And, like, bless his heart. He so hard on um, that thing. What I... What I <laughs> Right. Absolutely. Well, and, and what's what's fascinating, at least to me, about watching the first couple minutes of the episode, once you get to the, the core four, there's like a three minute sequence where they describe everything that's about to happen in the episode in like the most back to the future, like Robert Zemeckis way possible. They just start literally dropping like hint after hint after hint. This is going to happen. And then this is going to happen. And then Boimler's going to dive into the unknown. <laughs> and it just literally beat for beat for beat tells you the and even down to it sounds like clapping but with betrayal is literally the final scene of the episode when they're walking mm-hmm. Captain Freeman down the hallway and everyone mm-hmm. feels betrayed after they've started to clap it's just again impeccable writing and you know the king tumbler kid gone good uh Mike McMahon really just having the steady hand <laughs> on that ship like I, I don't know how you could have gotten to a finale like this otherwise Right, I definitely agree. That's the big crux of this, is Mariner finds out her mom, Captain Freeman, is getting a promotion, but that requires her getting transferred off the ship. And that's kind of like the internal politics. The external big force, quote-unquote, is they have to assist a a lovely TNG character with first contact, Forrest. Do you want to dive in on all that is Captain Gomez? Captain Gomez last seen uh, being aghast at the Borg carving out uh, the Borg, the first mention of the Borg (laughs) we're flying back to, and also spilling tea into Captain Picard's uh, chest. Um, Hot chocolate. Was it hot chocolate? Okay, I knew it wasn't tea. Yeah, exactly. You'll, You'll just have to walk around shirtless after that for a while. I I love of all the different callbacks they've done and all the you know all the little Easter eggs and and all that kind of stuff that they've played into Lower Decks and, and Lower Decks is such a show much like Boimler is the fan in the universe the show is this you know weekly gift of of little things that we enjoy noticing those of us who love noticing things in Star Trek but to bring back you know Captain Gomez as this fully fully actualized like character like she is she is part of this episode she is active in it she does there's a cute callback to the the hot chocolate spill but there's also like this clear progression of here's a character who we saw a couple of times someone who could have been just one of those guest stars one of those people who were around uh, for a time or two but then came back and and is like integrated into the the universe of star trek and it's one of those cool things where it's like it's clear they really care about the kind of continuation and development of these people and ideas that have been set up in 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 the history uh of star trek and i loved seeing uh captain not dr captain gomez in the in the episode She's she's a not infrequent guest star in some of the Star Trek Apocrypha. She's in a handful of the the novels and and notably in in a couple graphic novels where as I was kind of doing some some research for this episode realized that there's a a, a whole storyline in one of the graphic novels where she is 
fixing something with Reginald Barclay and Jordy, and Barclay's like really super confident about this thing that he fixes, and she's like, that's kind of hot. So she asks him out on a date, and they've got great chemistry until they realize he's actually the Barclay from the bigger universe. <laughs> so they, they have to capture him and send him back, and then the real Barclay comes back, and then they do not continue to date. And so I was like, that's that's pretty amazing. But she's She's such a wonderful, yeah, like, little character where if you didn't know that going into this episode, it's not going to hurt your enjoyment of it. Um, but it's, it's again, just this neat little, it's, like, little wrapped up in a burrito. Just keep it warm for you. It's delightful. So let's talk about our favorite topic on the show, a reoccurring segment we like to call Nacelles After Dark. Stacy. Can you walk us through how sexy the USS Archimedes is? I like big ships, and I cannot lie. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the thing. The Archimedes is an amazing idea, just from a fan point of view and also from an internal consistency point of view. Because with starship design, of course you would want to put it in an existing test bed that works, that you know works. So updating an Excelsior-class frame and incorporating elements of the Sovereign into it is such a genius idea. Uh, I believe the ship's class is the Obena class, and the Archimedes just cuts such a cool profile. Like, it's 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 big, like next to the Cerritos, which is already a fairly... Oh, yeah, it's ship. huge. Like, it's gigantic. And so having a ship with that scale, and I loved the fact that... Mike McMahon gets it. Like, he gets it in a way that, look, all respect <laughs> to Picard, absolutely, I understand. You had to get that first season out. You had to get it out on time. So you kind of cut and paste when it came to the starship design. But all those late, early 25th century ships, if I can get real with you, if I can lean up on this mic and get real with you, all those ships <laughs> are hot garbage. Like, they suck. <laughs> Their design okay, is well, so sexy. They're just a Betamax, Betamax video cassette. They're so functional. There's no, there's no graceful Starfleet lines to them. Like even even the Intrepid class, which is not my favorite class of ship, at least it's kind of got some grace to it. Some kind of uh, there's there's a hint of the DNA that runs from the Constitution class all the way to that. But those 25th century ships, no, nah, miss me with those. No, no. I, I I need certain things in my life. I need the Klingon <laughs> bird of prey to look like a swooping figure of terror. I need... I've seen yeah. what I need mm -hmm. to see. Exactly. The Archimedes, beautiful. The On the Intrepid class, the nacelles go up and yeah, then they go down. It's got like this... And then they go yeah, up and again. And it can land on a planet. And then they and go down. Tip, which is amazing <laughs> because with that design, you would think that ship would be buried nose first in the earth each time. Just fantastic uh what's the word fantastic balance and uh the intrepid class crashes onto an icy planet better exactly. than anyone that else. ship is like an ak-47 you just dump it in the desert you just pick it up tap the sand out works great fine exactly You're good say, to go. say this for starfleet <laughs> they build those ships to That's last fucked up man <laughs> look i'm just saying like in terms of tech like it is resilient and they are come on mm. yeah that's, that's, the peacekeeping that's, that's armada. Point. That's a good point. Yeah, the defiance. That's the defiance true. of that's escort. True. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, right, right. It's an escort. Yeah, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yep, you can get it on Uber mm -hmm. Black. It's an escort. That's for sure. Federations. <laughs> Federations. Totally. If I could order the defiant yeah. on Uber Black, I would be taking that thing everywhere. Federation. Oh, where's my, where's my 
Where's my Uber? It's cloaked. <laughs> did you, did you... Federation's totally not an empire. Yeah, I'm totally not an empire. What makes you think that? Shh. <laughs> yeah, I'm, did you I'm give the all clear signal? <laughs> you can't see me, but I'm mm. here. I guess it's at the corner. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, and the other big thing of ship porn we get... Hold on, I have something to say about the Archimedes. Mm -hmm. Okay. The, the neck of it Needies looks me. like it's ribbed for her pleasure. <laughs> I will be taking no oh. questions. <laughs> I mean... I, I was going for an accordion. I was going to say this is the USS Weird Al. <laughs> but, um, there are two kinds of it's, people. I mean... It's, yeah. it's, I mean, it's a, it's a fancy Excelsior, which I like. Right. I, I like that. Um, it's definitely a play on that. It's, it's a nice ship. And of yeah. course, the prettiest, newest ship in the fleet has got to be the one that's in, you know, epic danger. The Archimedes goes to establish first contact in the lap system. They've got they've got the Cerritos kind of you know sitting Plain on the sidelines, yeah. just making sure nothing goes crazy, and you know just just hanging out in the background. Mm. Right, and then there's a nova from the sun, and the Archimedes loses all power after getting hit with like weird magnetic debris, and the crew of the Cerritos, Rutherford, actually comes up with it. They're fall, fall, falling towards the atmosphere. Right. As the Archimedes is getting ready to plummet and destroy this entire planet, Rutherford comes up with the idea of removing the outer hull of the ship. And... Which is a callback to... Which is a callback to when they are building the Cerritos model... Several episodes earlier. Several episodes earlier, and they can't get the outer hull of the ship to fit right because it's magnetized <laughs> and like just the art of like placing that stuff in that you don't even think about and then it pays off like episodes and episodes later like it's so good guys it's so the, good the goddamn audacity right <laughs> to do that and then have it actually work out and pay off is brilliant again i just tip my hat and I love the way the the Cerritos looks when she's getting a little sexy, mm -hmm. you know, when she's showing a little shoulder, she's like playing a little hey, strip hey. poker mm -hmm. with the universe. Did you say it's the naked time? <laughs> mm. If you're nasty, what was Nate? There was a naked time for the shift, mm -hmm. the ship as well. Everyone gets some so, naked time. There, there was a a thread that was going around on Twitter about the design of the Cerritos. And where they put, like, the oh, yeah, whole marking. The name, yeah. yeah. And, like, it was on Twitter, I, I think a couple weeks ago, but essentially the showrunner indicated that, uh, you know, on most uh, ships, the, the designation yeah. is on the front of the ship, but on the Cerritos, it's on the back end of the saucer. And he said because he wanted it to look like a tramp stamp when they're towing bigger ships ah. that need their help. <laughs> and, like, and apparently that's that's an idea that has existed when they were doing the original designs for everything because the one of the merchandisers uh chimed in and was like yeah that's exactly the reason i was given like two years ago for that being there yes. <laughs> and now and now the cerritos is is showing a little leg i think my favorite part of that entire sequence before we get to you know, cetacean ops. Um, my favorite part of that entire sequence is when Rutherford is taking Tendi through the ship to be like, let's go visit all of the places on the Cerritos so you don't miss it and everything like that. Because she thinks she's getting Because she thinks she's getting transferred. She's getting canned mm -hmm. or transferred. And they go to the back port where all of the bunks are, and you see the outer hull panels eject from the nacelles. Like, oh, it's so good. It's so good. 
It's so nice. Plus, I love their reference to the secret rubber ducky room, right. and we get to see the captain's yacht, <laughs> which yes. has not been seen since. Could we make the argument that Star Trek Insurrection is really just a two-part episode of The Next Generation? I think we could. Insurrection is absolutely a two-part. Like, let's... I mean, yes. If we're going by the fact that the Cerritos is a kitbash ship, the California class is kitbashed, because it's very obviously a galaxy-class saucer strapped to some nacelles and a navigational deflector. Right. This is the first time we've seen the galaxy-class captain's yacht. Like, we've never yeah. seen it. You've only ever read it in the like the technical manual for the Enterprise D, but you never get a chance to actually see it. So yep. that's a cool that's a cool bit of reference too, yeah. I did like when Rutherford was saying, let's go the one place we're not supposed to go. And it, oh, it's the rubber ducky room? No, it's the captain's yacht. And then they're just sitting in the captain's yacht in the dark, like eating ice cream. <laughs> it's so scandalous. <laughs> like, I love those goofs. Rutherford is such a cinnamon roll and like, I, I love everything about him and the fact that he might secretly be, like, a Section 31 sleeper agent. I haven't quite put it all together yet, but when he's running through all the memories that he's, like, you know, purging all the, the dupes and, and things, like, he's defragging himself, essentially. Right. And um, <laughs> the memory comes up that, like, essentially he got that implant against his will for reasons we are not aware of yet. And I, I just, he's got to be a sleeper agent for section 31, right? Because in earlier in the season, there's a whole episode where they suspect that uh Mariner is a section 31 agent, like sent there to watch them and possibly kill everyone. So like, why would you do that? Otherwise well, don't forget in season one, and he's got all these super secret ninja moves. And in season one, there's that entire episode right. where he steals the bird of prey with the bridge crew. And he doesn't remember any of it. And he doesn't remember any of it. Yeah. Zero of it. Yeah. So, I don't know. There's definitely some secret stuff going on with Rutherford. And again, slow burn. The slowest right. burn. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the whale in the room. <laughs> I think... <laughs> I, I think... <laughs> like, it broke us. It broke us in such a dumb way... I think we were, like, sitting down eating so popcorn, and, like, I think we both just, like, mid, like, having popcorn almost to our mouth, just kind of, like, stop and just stared, and we're just like, <laughs> what the fuck is going on? I can't believe they did it. Because, like, they've been teasing Cetacean Ops for, a while. for, like, two seasons now. You know, the payoff's so good. I like, I like Matt. Matt's my favorite. Kimalu, though. Well, uh, it's well. I mean, when you're when you're in that kind of environment, in that high intensive, narrow aquatic cylindrical work environment, <laughs> you really just have you really just develop you know very special and specific types of relationships that might not make sense to outsiders or people who breathe oxygen from the air. I'm just waiting for like season three to roll around, and I just want this is what I want because I saw this and my brain just broke for a second and then kind of like put itself back together and then i just started imagining the whales and every iteration of every uniform across all of star trek mm -hmm. and like well, is there a security whale as far as i can tell like they're commissioned officers like they yes they, they had, had pips they had they had, had, they had combat i believe they had pips i'd have to look at the, the art but you know they're not like these you know, tools that Rutherford comes down and like manages, like they are actually like members of the crew 
who sit around yes. talking shit just like everyone else. They are treated like members of the crew. Though one of the funnier things about that whole sequence, but again, very validating, you know, I guess in a way, is that like they they at no point stop to be like, okay, how about the whales though? Uh, and like right, talk about them as right. if they're not really people. It's like no, they're like talking with them through the whole thing. I mean, it's funny that they're horny for Rutherford, but that seems to be something separate from the fact that they are fully functioning members of the crew. Yeah. To be fair, there's right. a lot of Rutherford thirst. So, oh, correct, <laughs> correct, subconscious or otherwise, Tendy. We stand a technological limbo. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Okie dokie. <laughs> The whole idea with Cetacean Ops has just been this running joke for ages, but to see it realized in such a... Because I believe the, the Enterprise had Cetacean Ops. They did, and Prize mm-hmm. D had Cetacean Ops, and Cetacean Lifeboats, and, and all this stuff. And so it's it's very much a real part of like the extended in-joke universe, but then to see it just like put to put into action, like these, exactly like you said, these are members of the crew. They are as real members of the crew as anybody else, and they're going to be treated just like that, and they're going to help each other out and be sassy and um, try to tempt that sweet, sweet body <laughs> into the pool. Or, or I guess maybe not the pool is the wrong word, but whatever they call their workspace, you know. Uh, and, yeah, it's What's fun. a little skinny dipping between work friends? Exactly. <laughs> oh, oh, what, yeah, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh. Yeah, Cetacean Ops, it was like... It was like borderline Adventure Brothers gag, but, like, you're so bought into it. And I think part of it is because, A, they drop it in a moment of crisis. It's not like mm-hmm. they're, it's not like they're just, like, going through Citation Ops to, like, get to the holodeck. Like, it's, it's, they're there for a purpose. Like, the Lower Deckers all mm-hmm. show up for a reason. And, like, because of that, I think it helps with the payoff. And I think it helps us as an audience take it a little more seriously. Instead of just being like, hey, it's a joke. Because, ultimately, this is... You know, Lower Decks is a is a comedy. It is not a high drama like, you know, DS9 or... But the drama, you know, I, you know shut your whore mouth, because <laughs> the drama in this episode <laughs> is deeply real. Right, and, right. And I, I think I, I was following some, some tweets along the last weekend. I think, like, Dan Slott uh, was one of the people that called it out that was like, if this was an episode of any of the live action shows... Like, with a a couple gags, you know, here and there aside, like, this fits seamlessly into any other full-fledged property in the Star Trek universe. Right, and that's the brilliance. And and I would even say that the the last season finale was, like, kind of gearing up to that level as well. I mean, this is executed flawlessly. Right. uh, And really just takes it next fucking level. But, like, the fact that these characters are are realized enough, the world they live in makes sense. It's fully integrated into what Star Trek is. And the fact that, like, when Star Trek's operating functionally story-wise, you can do things like this and take it completely goddamn seriously and it works is is wonderful. I didn't it's mean so good. I didn't mean to call it a comedy as a knock, but like it's it's billed as a comedy. Right. Right? Like you you It's the funny one. Yeah, it's it's the funny one. They lured you in with the zany hijinks, much the way the Orville did as well. Where it's like, oh, this is gonna right, be the right. zany popcorn turn off your brain one. And then in this season they were like, Oh wait, actually, um, we're gonna be a dramedy, y'all. 
we're gonna we're gonna occasionally pull yeah. the rug out from under you. And just when you think everything's just safe sitcom shenanigans, hey, the himbo that you really like could be a you know a sleeper agent. Hey, the captain that everybody's suddenly come to like a lot, we're taking her away. And there's indications of maybe a greater conspiracy going on between the Klingons and possibly that Starfleet security guy, because he is sus. He is so right. sus. <laughs> My eyes immediately narrowed, and I'm like, if you ain't Section 31, I'm a tribble. Come on, man. Come on. This is this is, shame right. of business is afoot. <laughs> so yeah, let's let's talk about the ending of this because you know they wrap everything up. They get to do first contact because the Archimedes they get to do yeah is Captain is Freeman gets to have first, her first first contact. first contact. Yeah, it's and it pays off. She gets super drunk. And I mean, the first episode of the series was about second contact mm. and about how that's kind of, you know, the Cali class specialty. And they've spent the entire season rubbing their noses into not being as good as everyone else. And so that moment just feels so goddamn good. Yeah, right. the whole bit with the California <laughs> class being the the people who do the scut work, like all the stuff that isn't sexy mm, right. to the point where even Captain Gomez is doing it, but in a gentle like hey, you guys are equally valid, too. You're awesome. And <laughs> it gets to the point where when when Freeman brings up the fact that, as Gomez says, they don't like to transfer over the Cali-class crews, Billups goes batshit. <laughs> like, yeah. He blows I up. I love Billups. Oh, He's man. so great. Like, when that guy's got mad, like, that legitimately disturbs Freeman. <laughs> he is so... I think he's understated a lot. I think my my favorite like secondary character that's not like one of the core like six or seven you know like if you include the captain and ransom and shacks and all that is the therapist the bird oh, yeah, yeah, who makes yeah. all yes. the food related jokes oh, like God. I mean he's great too but like I think Billups like they had that Billups focused episode like halfway through the season well and on a show that didn't care so goddamn much. Phillips would not be as, like, lush of a character as he is. Right. The fact that we've got a potentially asexual, but not aromantic engineer with a mustache made of dreams who's very passionate (laughs) about warp cores and technology and, like, (laughs) is this kind of big nerd, but also has this, like, swagger energy he brings to being bridge crew and being, you know, senior staff. It's just, like, we know so much about Billups. I love that. And the fact <laughs> why why yeah. why would we need to know this much about Billups? But we, we do. do. We know that Billups is from <laughs> a planet where dragons exist and the population went full right. Scottish planet and they decided to make okay, all our 24th uh, century technology is magic. So the engineer is a blacksmith. The dilithium matrix is the elven matrix and like literally during the episode he's like dragon blood. Like he curses like, yeah. like it's just like I love it. And I think that's actually an extension of a, of a gag from TNG? I, it's either TNG well, or TOS episode. The Scottish planet. Like that, well, that, right, next to, that colony. The, is, yeah, planet sex ghost. Yes. Um, excuse you. Yes. Right, planet, planet sex, sex ghost. ghost. Population yeah, just right. decided, mm-hmm. okay, so we're all agreed. We're, we're Ren Fair planet. We're, we're doing, doing this. this. We're all right. 18th century. <laughs> We've all decided it. We're all wearing the tartans and the brogues. 17th century Scotland, go. And that was it. That was what was done. So, and then there's somewhere out there. There's old West planet, mm-hmm. and you know, mm-hmm. you just you run down the list, and like 
I think it's very that's... George Lucas. Wow. It's you great. Know. Planet yeah. of Hats. The whole, the whole planet's a city. Yeah. The whole city's a planet. The city's a planet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what if, yeah, what if the whole city is a planet? Where does it stop? Nobody knows. Just keeps if going down. If we don't go to Billups' planet, I will riot. Because I want to see Boimler panicking and freaking out while he's riding the back of a dragon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I need to see here Jack yeah. Wade shriek. <laughs> we, and I think Caitlin and I, we have been pitching lower decks to all of our friends who are like kind of like Star Trek agnostic, like, oh, we know about it. And I think our pitch for it has always been like, what if Rick and Morty didn't punch down? Yeah. And that's what this mm-hmm. show mm-hmm. is. And I think Boimler is like a great example of that. Well, and Billups as well. I mean, I mean, go back to the Billups episode where the whole thing is that he doesn't want to have sex. He, he doesn't, he also doesn't really want to rule this planet, but like most importantly, he does not want to have sex. Right. And that's what co- triggers him to be, you know, elevated to his full like royal status. And like his crew just shows up and they're like, we respect your wishes. And like, that's cool. I have no yep. additional yeah. questions this time. Yeah. And it's like, right. that's great. I, I just, there are so many little opportunities like that where that could have been the butt of the joke. And obviously there are moments that are humorous because like everyone's trying to have sex with Billups <laughs> and they keep trying to trick him into it. But like the fact that he doesn't want to, isn't the joke. Right. Right. Exactly. Yes. Right. And it's just, it's so artfully written just across the board, mm-hmm. not necessarily this episode first, first contact, but like just in general, lower decks across the board is written so well. That, like, sometimes you kind of just, like, oh, this is just more Star Trek. It's not necessarily, oh, this is the funny one sometimes. Sometimes it's just, this is this is it. Mm-hmm. Like, I think mm-hmm. uh, it was, like, two or three episodes before this one where they were doing all of the holodeck simulations. I oh, Expertis. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and Boimler is just, like... I can do better, I can do better, I can be better. And, like, they're sprinkling jokes in there. And he just wants to speedrun it. And he just, he he wants to speedrun it, and he wants to be the best that he can be. And that, if that's not Star Trek and Starfleet ideals, I don't know what is. And that just, it inspires me to save all the Borg babies. They do a much better, and, you know, not to pit one Star Trek against each other, but I'm going to do it a little bit, is... You know, between Discovery and Lower Decks, they both have a kind of We Are Starfleet speech. Lower Decks is better. It's Ooh. the one where Boimler <laughs> is giving the speech to the Titan crew about why the nerdy stuff about Star Trek is okay to love, as you know, he like, because he loves it so genuinely, and it actually gets them out of the jam, and it causes like the Will and Thomas Riker conundrum. But um, it's it's so compelling because it's just validating that like this is something that was formative for me and I'm not going to be ashamed of the fact that like this formed me as a person and all the good things I became as a result of you know immersing myself in this I, I I'm not going to turn my back on it right and it's very genuine and very you know it's it's just lovely and it's not up its own ass about it the subtle dig to uh more modern Trek, like Discovery and Picard, where everybody's asking Boimler, right. what's it like on the Titan? He's like, it was a bunch of complex characters thrown into heavy serialized battles, which always ended in mind-blowing twists, which makes me question <laughs> the basic tenets of my reality. 
<laughs> you can just tell that was Michael McMahon just like digging his elbow into the ribs of the and being yeah. like, "This is fine. It has its place. It's not what I'm here for." Right. <laughs> we're we're not doing that. <laughs> the biggest thing about this before we get the final thoughts is now we have to wait a year. <sighs> yeah. I mean, maybe I, I, do they even have like a launch date for season two? I don't think they do yet. For season three, no, they don't. Or, sorry, for season three. No, no, they don't. It still just says twenty twenty two. Hey, technically, technically, twenty twenty two is in only yeah, like around the three months, yeah, guys. Yeah. We're almost there. Well, right, but I mean, when we when we think about what's coming up, we've got Prodigy and then Discovery, which are going to run and simultaneously. Yep. And right, Picard. and so and after Discovery's done, then we're gonna get Picard and Strange, and Strange New, New Worlds. Worlds probably after that. Daddy Pike. And then maybe a maybe a summer premiere. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm actually super excited about the the double Star Trek for the first time since so the Voyager DS9 overlap. Uh, once upon a time. Yeah, that'll be really great. Let's wrap it all up, Stacy. Is there anything you want to you know cross that T, dot that I on from? First, first contact. Okay, I'm going to bullet, I'm going to lightning round all, cool. all my references here. So we already did Rubber Ducky Room. So that was out of, out of control. Love it. Look up the, look up the blueprints for the galaxy class, everybody. You'll figure it out. The reference to Captain with a Riding Crop. That was fucking brilliant. That was original Styles joke. I fucking loved it. I saw you. The Dragon Blood presentation on the joystick helm. Where Ransom's oh, piloting it yeah. with, the, with the joystick. That was great. When Boimler, who has had a near-death experience, was like, I saw a koala. <laughs> and he's like, you better not yeah. think about that. The Mariner-Jennifer thing where I was like, oh, wow, we are really going full court yes, press on yes, making yes. Mariner not a yes, trash yes. woman. Like, this whole episode was basically like, hey, Mariner, maybe you could not be trash. And she's just like, well, maybe I won't be. And for the last one was the Starfleet security jerks. They are jerky. I do not like them. And every, with rare exception, with, with the exception of the Titan crew, and of course, William Riker and Sonia Gomez, anytime, or, and, and of course, Troy, anytime we've seen those like first contact style uniforms, it, it, it's, it's starting to yeah. have a Team Rocket energy, like prepare for trouble. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Uh, Caitlin, do you have any closing thoughts before we give the floor to Forrest for him to rant for 20 minutes? Guys, I love this show so much. Talking a little about Mariner 2 and her growth over the last two seasons has been wonderful to watch. And I'm so excited for her to have angry hookups with her Andorian girlfriend because I'm just calling <laughs> Thank my you. shot right Thank now. Thank you. I'm so yes. here for yes. it. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. A hundred percent. You know, really just letting the flower blossom that started all the way back in Enterprise where my my command folk and my Andorians just need to hook up and be happy fighting together forever. <laughs> um, again, I, I just, I find myself in awe of the fact that this show has amazing music and amazing design um, down to the smallest details and characters that, you know, even even smaller characters are just completely fleshed out in ways that lesser shows, not, not necessarily Star Trek shows, but just like TV in general doesn't really get to those background characters as quickly as Lower Decks has managed to and not in a way that feels forced, makes it feel like you're just really learning about all the people that live on this this California-class ship together. And that makes me happy. Yeah. And I love them. It's like 20 episodes 
And mm-hmm. there are characters that have more depth than, I don't know, like any show that runs on the CW. So Breaking Bad, eat your heart out. I don't know what to tell you. Right. So I'm going to pass the mic over to Forrest here. Who <laughs> he has a has, very special message for us has, all. <laughs> has, has a very special message that he texted me about probably like three or four times. Forrest, how, how are you feeling about Dr. Ta'ana and, and Tendi? So, at the end of this episode, Tendi gets a, a lovely little send-off or a lovely little, you know, redirection because everyone's kind of setting up for season three and, and for Tendi, it's like, you know, you shouldn't really be toiling down here in sickbay. You should be in the, you know, the science officer command training program or, or whatever whatever it's called and, and Tendi all bright-eyed and excited is, is says, you mean like Jadzia Dax? And I, so, I was like, yes, a Dax reference. I love this. Uh, and Dr. Tana responds, who the fuck is that? Uh, which, hilarious, great joke. And then she goes, no, I mean like Spock. And like, A plus joke. Totally get it. And I haven't figured out wh- where I think this joke is coming from yet, but I think I have figured out that this is a very clear acknowledgement from our wonderful Lower Decks writing staff that Deep Space Nine is not, shall we say, the favorite series of any of the, uh, or, or the favorite series of, of Star Trek from that era, this era of Star Trek. I guess we could call it the middle television era of Star Trek. It's a very clear indication in my mind that they recognize that Deep Space Nine is not the content they're pulling from. Yes, we had a flashback to Deep Space Nine and we've seen Quark's franchise, which good for Quark. Same with <laughs> Vic Fontaine. We've seen a couple of Fontaine signs here or there. Um, but those are really, really like basic references whereas we're getting captain gomez and cetacean ops and who knows what other million different uh references to tng stuff right and tom paris shows up right (laughs) so we're getting some voy love we love voy you know in the season premiere there is that great holodeck sequence there's some great cardassian ships so that that was appreciated but that's really, you know, all all we're getting at. That's really all we're all we're feeling. Even I think, you know, even Discovery I think has done some better future hints to DS9 stuff, the USS Nog being a good example of that and, you know, Eisenberg class. Like that's that's really meaningful and heartfelt. So, I want to read this as a as a hint. Like we're all looking for hints, right? We don't know the resolution of this, which is so much fun. But I want to read that as a hint that, yes, they know they haven't talked about Deep Space Nine, and they're going to. But at the same time, I feel like it's kind of this representation of, yeah, we know that Deep Space Nine's there, and we're just not going to we're not going to do anything with it. Because it's more fun to, you know, make fun of, uh, or not make fun of, but it's more fun to play off of TNG tropes. And Prodigy is coming, which is going to be a full Voyager riff yeah or uh, not even a riff it's it's holographic captain janeway and captain chakotay like think about that we're going to be seeing most of the cast of voyager back in new star trek before we get more than a passing reference to jadzia dax and i think a joke that mariner stole Worf's mechleth once uh stole it and broke it i think that was the episode where her intendee uh, go on their little fetch quest for um, Dr. Tana's something or other, her play box. Her, her, yeah, her scratching post. <laughs> <laughs>
I, so the joke really, I, I mean, I laughed and then I was sad because <laughs> I don't know what that means for, and, and maybe we don't need to go back to DS9. You know, the Picard trailer for season three definitely puts us in the Bell Riots. Yep, so I think so. Yeah, that might be uh, uh, coming around. And in the Picard season three preview trailer, there is definitely a broken Bajoram time tablets or or something like that. So so maybe that's coming, and maybe that's the hint that's coming up. I would I would make the argument that I I know you know we're we're talking about it from like the metatextual standpoint of like what does this mean in terms of references and you know how it all connects back, but from a contemporaneous standpoint, like within universe, like the dominion war only really like just happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so all of the pieces from that are kind of still shaking out on the edge of the alpha quadrant, as opposed to, they do make all the, the heavy handed side references to the TOS era where those guys are already legends. And, you know, you do have captain Picard who is, you know, the leader of the fleet of Starfleet currently, um, he is going to, of course, be a huge, you know, political figure and a huge person just in Starfleet. But, I mean, I would make the argument that, that DS9's influence and the the impact that DS9 had is still kind of trickling out to the rest of the quadrant. And maybe maybe that's naive, you know, just yeah, in the universe but- for where they are. I don't know necessarily that that would just be part of something they'd be, like, chatting about. No, I think, I mean, I think that makes sense from kind of like that. Tendi's a huge nerd and is, of course, going to know who Jadzia Dax is while she was searching science command officers at some point. And Dr. Tan is not that and doesn't care anymore, but remembers Spock because who doesn't remember Spock? So I I totally track that, you know, with the with the in universe uh, piece. That's my optimistic reading of the joke is like, oh, only deep, hardcore nerds like Tendi and, and even Boimler with his Voy plate collection, right? They, they're the only ones who are really appreciating all of Star Trek, like, whereas the rest of Starfleet's just like puddling along. Oh, yeah, I know who Kirk is. Spock, heard of him. Dr. McCoy, maybe? I don't know. Another thing that you have to consider outside of Star Trek universe as a whole DS9 is, for lack of better terming, the black sheep. You know, it's the it's, only it's one... It's our favorite floating Arby's. Right. It, like, it's it's the Arby's in the sky. It's not a ship. You know, it is it is a space station, and it's it's always been, you know, it was the first one that was, like, really serialized. It was doing a lot of big ideas and big things. And I think because of that, it is originally viewed as kind of like the pariah of the Star Trek franchise. But like, I think in the era of Netflix and everybody being able to watch seven seasons in four weeks or whatever, I think Mm. it has recontextualized deep space nine as a show because I, I follow a lot of people on Twitter that are not big, science fiction big but are only just now kind of coming back around to ds yeah and like with a lot of appreciation which is lovely yeah ds9 on twitter is great because it's it's people a lot of people a experiencing it for the first time and b people who just unabashedly love it uh my feeling is that deep space nine got a lot of grief early on because it was the first show to step outside the vision of the great bird and call out 
the utopian federation on some of its own bullshit. Like, yes, it's this is great for everybody who happens to be living deep within the borders of the federation. But if you're somebody out on the edge, you know, don't cry for me, Argentina. Like the whole bit with the setup episodes, Journey's End, where the federation is perfectly willing to throw federation citizens under the bus to appease the Cardassian. Just, just absolutely just like, oh, nothing we can do. You'll have to come with us, right? Because... Yeah, like it was the first show to do that. It was the first show to consistently say, yes, we've solved a bunch of problems by the 24th century, but problems still exist. And to a lesser extent, Lower Decks does that too. It says, yeah, in the 24th century utopia of Star Trek, everybody's great. Everybody's equal. It's wonderful. The Federation is great, but there still has to be people who run around and do all the, you know, the busy work, the stuff that happens behind the scenes while, mm -hmm. you know, the Enterprise is off soaring and looking heroic and majestic. You've got the California class ships and their crews, you know, just chipping away. Like they're not, they're not the best of the best of the best, but they give us a chance to look at what and a, a slightly above average or even average Starfleet crew looks like. So, and Deep Space right. Nine was the forerunner of that. So I think it gets a little bit of, of static, I should say. It gets a lot of love for me because even the first time out, I loved it. And just to touch on what Forrest was talking about, my take on it was it was the divide between newer fans and older fans. Because like, if you're just an older, uh, older yeah. cat, mm -hmm. the first reference you're going to reach for, like me, would be Spock. So I'm on the Tana side of the fence. So when she goes Jedzia Dax, like I'm like, yeah, but I mean more like Spock, you know, and, you know, not to invalidate Jedzia, but yeah, yeah. So it's it's nice that she's like, yeah, like Jedzia Dax. And they've shown some love to Deep Space Nine. Like when <laughs> when they complete the Cer the Cerritos model and then they get the Deep Space Nine model, it comes with Esri and Jedzia Dax. <laughs> that was fun. So there's, there's little references that show that there's, there's an affection there. They just like to take the piss. Well, and I mean, that's that's the art of the joke. Is you, you gotta thread that line really, really thin. So, that's part of the reason we love Lower Decks. So, I guess we're gonna circle back to this in like a year? Oh, yeah. So, you know, we'll, we'll <laughs> buzz you guys when Lower Decks comes we'll back. I'm sure, flippy flop. I'm sure we're all gonna be incredibly excited and thrilled about Lower Decks <laughs> coming back. Yes, for sure. Stacy Forrest, I want to say thank you so much for joining us tonight. And I guess until next time, t to be continued. <laughs>